You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Tom. Hey, Bob. How are you? I can't complain. How are you doing? Um, I, I'm good. It's uh, I can't complain either. And if I did, no one would care. But it's um, uh, I can't complain. Oh, yeah. Tom. Millions of millions of enthusiastic readers care about you. That's right. Let me me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, uh, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero podcast. You are Thomas Friedman, well-known and Pulitzer Prize winning author and columnist for the New York Times. You write about foreign affairs. Uh, We're going to talk about, I think, both Ukraine and Taiwan. You actually wrote a very interesting column today uh, connecting the two. You know, uh, as of uh, airtime, I believe, or as of recording time, Nancy Pelosi was still apparently going to go to Taiwan. She may. She's there now. She's at this moment. She's arrived. Having having her meetings, yeah. Sounds like she's just going to stay for the day and not even overnight. But uh, Well, I guess maybe that's an improvement. But in any event, your column uh, I found really interesting because it made a kind of argument against her going that was a little different from the arguments I had heard. I mean, everyone had talked about tensions with Taiwan, potentially explosive, World War III, and so on. You had a slightly different point to make uh, connecting this to Ukraine. Do you want to run over that for us? Yeah, two points I was trying to make, Bob. One a general one, one a a specific one. The general one is it's deeply unwise for the United States to be um, putting itself where it's in a potential conflict, indirect conflict, um, with the two other global superpowers at the same time, um, China and Russia. I mean, that's sort of basic to me, geopolitics 101. But the the broader point I was making is that um, uh, I believe we should keep our eye on the prize. I think the prize is uh, um, stalling and, and if possible, reversing of Vladimir Putin's um, uh, invasion of Ukraine. And um, that should be priority number one. And because that's my priority number one, and I think should be America's priority number one, um, we need to keep in mind that early in the war, President Biden, his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, um, sat down with their Chinese counterparts and had some really tough discussions. Um, uh, the, the nub of which was that China uh, should not, must not, um, uh, provide military aid to Russia in this war. Uh, and um, uh, there was a lot of back and forth with Biden basically telling the Chinese, um, understand your two biggest export markets are the EU and the United States, and those would be imperiled if you did. And the Chinese, for their own national interests, their own calculations, um, both economic and, and, and military, decided not to help Russia. And that has been very important for the American war effort. Let's remember, China's DGI um, a company is, is considered the greatest drone maker in the world. Um, they make civilian drones, but you can bet they can make military ones. There's nothing Putin needs more right now than drones. He's evidently run mm-hmm. through most of his. And one of the reasons he was believed to have gone to Tehran, Bob, uh, two weeks ago, was actually to enlist the Iranian uh, drone industry on his side. So in any ways, I thought the, the fact that China, uh, we had made this big request, China had um, uh, acceded to this request, and I've confirmed it from everywhere. They're, they're not providing military uh, arms to to Russia in this war. I actually thought it was an opening for Biden to China. I, 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 not, not just a, an important fact in and of this war, but um, uh, I'm not comfortable with a drift in US-China relations. I, I'm not uh, in any way naive about the Chinese, but um, you know, my philosophy has always been with China, build bridges where possible, draw red lines where necessary. I don't care to be into a, a cold war with China. I think the world would be a, 
less prosperous and more dangerous place if we are. So every time I see an opening here, I say, well, let, let's nurture. Let's let's see where that can go. And I thought this was a moment to be actually nurturing uh, and exploring the possibility of what I call Biden to China, but but trying to actually improve U.S.-China relations at the time we're taking on uh, Putin's Russia and um, and not doing anything to to provoke them um, uh, outside of Bob any any strategy. What, what, what is the strategy Nancy Pelosi is doing? Is this is this a swan song strategy? So things won't be speaker anymore. Has always had a very principled anti-China position on human rights. So she just thought she could go or should go. I, I don't mind if you're going to go if you make the case. It's in the context of a strategy. And the way I tried to frame it in the column today was, here's what I think the strategy should be. I don't get this at all. Yeah. I, so do you know, did she even consult with the executive branch before initially kind of deciding to go? You know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a report uh, in the Financial Times that she was planning to go to Taiwan. Do you know at that point, had she even consulted with the, with the White House, the, the Defense no. Department? I think the word was informed, um, uh, but not consulted. Um, uh, you know, she takes very seriously that they are a, a co-equal separate branch of government. And um, this was, she took along her, her uh, uh, colleagues from the um, House Foreign Affairs Committee, as I, as I, as I recall. And um, uh, so I think she informed them um, uh, and they then proceeded to inform her um, uh, from the CIA director to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs that this is a really bad idea at this time. And um, uh, but she was not dissuaded. Uh, she went ahead with it. And um, you know, to me, at a minimum, Bob, it, it will, um, uh, you know, nothing will come of it uh, except some uh, may a sound and light show the Chinese will um, put on over Taiwan. I hope that's the, that that is the minimum. But there is a risk here that um, uh, the Chinese would see the need to escalate in some military fashion. I don't know what. And um, uh, and and you start a tit for tat. I think, though, Bob, there's a there's a larger uh, strategic point here that one should take into mind. Um, there is a school that believes that one reason Putin invaded Ukraine now, and there's kind of a weird symmetry between Ukraine and Taiwan, Ukraine, Russia, Taiwan, China, yeah. that he chose to invade at this time, that is last winter, because he saw the window of opportunity for such an invasion closing. Um, exactly how he calculated that, I don't know, but that maybe that Ukraine would be into the bosom of the European Union. It wouldn't have; it would have more military equipment. I don't know what it is, but there, there was the perception that 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 Putin chose now because he saw a window of opportunity for keeping Ukraine in the Russian orbit closing. Mm -hmm. There's a real there's a real danger that um, uh, that she and China will conclude that there is no peaceful way for China-Taiwan reunification, which has always been their, their, their claim and, and, and their expressed desire. And therefore, his window of opportunity is closing. Um, and, and therefore, just because tomorrow Pelosi leaves and China hasn't you know, blown up you know, something in Taiwan, don't take that as, okay, that worked, that was all just mm -hmm. fine. This feeds into a larger strategic narrative for China and the, my concern is that they will perceive their window closing um, or being, having been closed for a peaceful reunification um, and that they need to act militarily. I hope oh. that isn't the case. But I think one has to really think about it in that way. It's funny you should mention this because I'm writing a piece for uh, my newsletter, non-zero non newsletter, that will probably go up 
tonight where I'm, I'm kind of making that parallel in the context of a slightly larger argument. Uh, I, I'm, I'm arguing that the way the, the Ukraine war is being processed in America, uh, you know, among foreign policy elites and, and so on, may come back to haunt us in Taiwan precisely because of these parallels. I yes. mean, there, there is, you know, from the beginning, I've been saying that, yes, the, the, the arming of Ukraine was a, a two-sided coin. On the one hand, we like to think it would have a deterrent effect, maybe. It might help Ukraine defend themselves. But from Russia's point of view, of course, in keeping with what political scientists call the, the security dilemma, it may, A, look like a threat, and B, they may, they may decide, well, look, if our nightmare scenario is unfolding in any event, that is to say, a Ukraine that is a de facto member of NATO, brimming with NATO weapons and advisors and so on, well, we, we might as well act now before there's even more weapons in Ukraine. So I've always thought that was a two-sided coin, and I've thought that there are parallels with Taiwan. For a long time, we've succeeded in conjunction with China, kind of, uh, in, in implicit coordination with them, in kicking the can down the road, right? Can I just stop you there, Bob? Sure. I think that's very, it's a very good point you're making. I want to stop you because I think that term kicking the can down the road is so important in the Taiwan-China context. Because you hope somehow that evolution in China, uh, evolution in Taiwan will result in some kind of peaceful arrangement to them. So any any day we add to that calendar to me is a good day. And any day you, you, you cross off from that calendar and create the impression that that is not possible um, to me is a really bad day and a really reckless day. And, and that's my critique of Pelosi. Uh, okay, you wanted to go to Taiwan. In what strategic context are you doing this? You know, right. and, and that I think she really has to explain. Right. So we've been we've been saying for uh, you know for a long time. We understand China expects to unify with Taiwan. We don't want to say too much about it, but we, as long as it's peaceful, whatever happens is peaceful and uh, fine. That has worked for half a century. Okay, yeah, that's, the, that's the Shanghai communique, I mean, that, right? It's, it's, and, yeah, yeah. and and that's been kicking the can down the road. It's worked, um, and I worry that uh, a number of things together, including the further arming of Taiwan and maybe more assertive naval maneuvers uh, by the U.S. Who knows? And Pelosi going to Taiwan will give them the, the idea that you know this game is coming to an end, and yeah. and uh, Taiwan is becoming. Not the kind of threat to China that Putin might imagine a NATOized Ukraine is to Russia. Not that, but 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 they might say, look, interests we consider vital, which is to say that Taiwan doesn't leave our our uh, you might say sphere of influence. Although it's, again, it's different from Ukraine, but but doesn't kind of leave our orbit uh, and kind of make fools of us and so on. That that's a vital interest to us. And if it seems like that's going to happen with America's support. And 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 they're sending more and more arms to Taiwan. Well, might as well act now. Now I'm I'm already look. I don't know. Again, there are both sides to the coin. Weapons yeah. can have a deterrent effect. Yes. They can help you defend. But we need to acknowledge that they can boomerang on you in the same way. And and the argument I'm making in 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 my piece is, you know, I have been on the side in the Ukraine debate of uh, arguing that, you know, maybe we made a mistake in, 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 in sending more and more arms to Ukraine because of this other side of the coin. And, and all, I, I, I'm not asking people to accept that I'm right. I'm asking them 
to accept that this is something that needs to be vigorously debated uh, as it is applied to Taiwan, right? We need a robust debate about what happened in Ukraine because it does it is relevant to Taiwan, and that's in the future. We're not just we're not just dwelling on the past when we talk about the effect of NATO expansion and so on. This is a critical debate because it applies to Taiwan. And that's the argument I'm making. And and I, I think, look, maybe I suffer from a persecution complex. I mean, it seems to me uh, some powerful people have been trying to kind of marginalize and stigmatize my side of the debate. You know, we're, we're, we're parroting Putin talking points. We're justifying the invasion, which we're not. We say, you know, um, and so on. So that that's the argument I'm making. We need me, to have a debate. So let me react to that. Um, uh, I am a paying subscriber to your Substack. Um, because God um, bless you. I, uh, I'm a paying subscriber I, uh, to the New York Times. Exactly. Hold on. This is, let me just. Um, I'm a paying subscriber to your Substack because I I want your perspective in my ear. Um, uh, if I've learned anything, you know, about all of these, you know, geopolitical stories, you you really want to be hearing from everybody, and uh, and I and I think your perspective has merit. I think where where I would critique it. Um, uh, where I say that the thing maybe is missing in your really nuanced mm. argument is um, it, it it underplays, I would say, Bob, the, the sheer notion of malevolence of Putin and Xi. That um, one can say Russia has these historical geopolitical concerns. One can also say that Putin really changed in the last eight years, that the first eight years of Putin, he was really um, Leon Aaron, the historian, um, as she's writing a biography of Putin, says he was a distributor of wealth, and he really changed um, uh, as as his as the regime got more entrenched, um, more corrupt. I would argue, um, and that he really felt he needed to be a distributor of dignity more, and saw the conflict with Ukraine in that context. Uh, one could make the same argument about Xi. Um, you know, I've always said about China that China is so much more open than it was forty years ago, and so much more closed than than it was eight years ago. There's been a real reversal. And she, I think, is a bad guy. I think he's bad for China um, and the world and is not above wanting to use uh, Taiwan as a way of deflecting from his own failures on, on COVID, on the massive debt bubble, um, on the real estate bubble, et cetera. And so I, what I'm trying to balance always is what I think is the, the very important question you're raising and asking us to ask um, uh, as you know, I was opponent of NATO expansion from the beginning, so mm -hmm. I'm saying all this myself. Um, with the the sheer malevolence that 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 these aren't that that Putin does not equal Russia's national interests, and she doesn't equal China that they China's national interests. That each one has political interests absolutely and that are manipulative, and I think that that's where I I I, I think has been the uh, tension between our two arguments. Yeah, I mean, I'd say a couple of things. First of all, Putin is uh, a bad guy uh, by my lights. I mean, you say he's gotten worse in the last eight years. I want to address that. I, I believe it's true, because, and I believe we may have played a role. But that aside, yeah. he was a bad guy a long time ago. There's yeah. actual evidence that he that he was part of a false flag attack within Russia, as you no doubt yeah. know, right? Absolutely. That that bombs Absolutely. that went off in Russian apartment buildings killing Russian civilians in the late 1990s to gin up support, I guess, for the, the Chechen war or something, yeah. uh, that he had a hand. There's, we don't know for sure. 
but there's good evidence. Wouldn't put it past him. Not a good guy. Uh, that's for sure. But that's what you're dealing with, right? That's the player you you, you got to play against. And uh, as far as I also agree, he's gotten uh, kind of worse, you might say. Uh, and I think part of it may be age, thinking about legacy. Am I going to be thought of as the man who restored Russian greatness? There's all that. But I also think there's something else. And here I would emphasize how much I agree with you that he's not just a national interest calculator. And although I have a lot of sympathy for the realists like John Mearsheimer, one place I depart is that you got to remember, uh, A, he's got, and, and many realists acknowledge these kinds of things. John yeah. is pretty much a pure old-fashioned realist. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but, but it's good uh, actually to have someone who's the undiluted essence of realism right. as a bookend for the debate. But go right. ahead. Right. <laughs> uh, the, the, um, but uh, I think, first of all, there are domestic political considerations. People underestimate the extent to which autocrats face them. I, th yeah. I think autocrats oh. care deeply how much people, uh, their people like them. And one of my rules of journalism about is that no one polls more than dictators and autocrats. <laughs> That's right. Nobody polls more. And of course, they try hard to manipulate public opinion. All politicians do. They do so more repressively and have more levers to do it, but they don't, they can't do it infinitely. So they have to care how their policies work. Okay. And 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 by the way, uh, a footnote, we should keep that in mind in the context of Ukraine. Maybe we'll have time to talk about it. in terms of his war aims and, yes. and, and war achievements that he considers the minimum acceptable in terms of domestic politics. But the other place I, I agree with you is just he's a human being. He's got a psychology. He can, he wants respect. Yeah. And of course, uh, being an autocrat, he may identify more closely with Russia than some national leaders might with their countries. So for him, Russia getting respect him getting respect, they may be largely the same thing. And I, I would say that I think the mistake that we made with NATO and critically in 2008, when George W. Bush, against the advice of many people, including William Burns, who's now head of the CIA, was ambassador to Russia, when, when, when Bush invited basically Ukraine uh, to join NATO against the better judgment of the Europeans, I think the mistake was not just in, in making Putin feel threatened in a national security sense, it was a sign of disrespect. Putin had made very clear, look, we think we're a great power. We have interests just like you do. And we have noticed, you, A, you keep violating international law, which at that point, Putin hadn't uh, committed transporter aggression. Chechnya was inside of Russia, right? He hadn't, he hadn't invaded other countries. And uh, a, he, he said, A, this is in his Munich Security Conference uh, diatribe, right? He said, you guys have been violating international law. We're not happy about NATO expansion. And Bush just gave him the back of his hand. And I think that really matters. I mean, Putin is a guy who famously has a chip on his shoulder. Of course, he cares about respect. Of course, it's in your interest to at least go through the motions of showing him respect. We didn't. So I, I, I deny that I have some kind of narrow realist uh, view of Putin as some kind of national security calculate. As domestic political interests, he has a psychology that we should take into account. I think all of these things argue against what the American policy has been. And I think they also at least raise doubts. I mean, as far as NATO expansion and Ukraine's role in it. But I think they also raise doubts about the wisdom of the, the, the pretty rapid arming of, of Ukraine since the middle of the Trump administration. Again, I'm not saying for sure I know that I'm right. I'm saying... <laughs> This is relevant to Taiwan, 
And we need to think clearly about what went wrong here. Because one thing I can say for sure is those weapons did not have a deterrent effect on Putin. Okay, that didn't work. If you think that's what arming a country does, didn't work in this case. So let me react to a couple of things. Um, one is I don't remember if we talked about this in our earlier podcast, but um, about I don't know, six or seven years ago, I decided to change my business card from Thomas L. Friedman, New York Times foreign affairs columnist to Thomas L. Friedman, New York Times humiliation and dignity columnist. Because <laughs> I basically look back. Wait, at, wait, wait, wait. First, does it actually say that? Well, yeah, actually, yeah, actually, it actually says, says that. Okay. It actually, actually says that. Um, your call. It's um, your business card. That's right. <laughs> and um, because I realized I had spent really my 40 years covering people acting out in their humiliation and questing for dignity, mm-hmm. whether it was Palestinians versus Israelis, Muslim youth in Europe versus a Christian majority. China spoke about a century of humiliation, certainly Putin versus um, uh, the West, that um, the two most powerful human emotions are humiliation and dignity, the quest for dignity um, and the rage. And the rage from being humiliated is like no other rage. You can cut my salary, you can even fire me. But if you humiliate me, I will fantasize that I have a bazooka on my shoulder Mm -hmm. and I am blowing you away. And so I realized that I'd really spent my career uh, covering people, acting out on that sense of humiliation, questing for dignity. I'm working on a book now that um, the, the main, the title of it is What You Say When You Listen. Because um, uh, I, I, the biggest lesson I think I've learned as a journalist is that when, you're, when you listen, listening is important for two reasons. One is uh, what you hear, what you learn. Uh, all the mistakes I made were because I was talking when I should have been listening. Um, but more importantly is what you say when you listen. Because listening is a sign of respect. And it's amazing, I discovered over the years, what people will allow you to say to and about them critically if they think you respect them. And I had a particular angle on this because I was a Jewish kid from Minnesota wanted to cover the Arab Muslim world in the 70s. That was not a natural thing. Um, and the avenue for that was not a natural avenue. And um, hold on a second. Um, uh, and and for anyone who followed my stuff on the Middle East, you know, it's it's not like I'm not out to say you're all great, you're all wonderful. It's all the Jews' fault. You know, I'm in people's face a lot. But the way I survived doing that was by always trying to be a really good listener. Um, and and I've always found if if you will do that with people, it's not just what you learn; it's what you say when you listen, um, and that people will then actually take in. You know what, 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 uh, what the point you're trying to get across, and that's been my, frankly, survival mechanism all these years. So, I, I hugely agree with you. I, 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 that was my initial concern about NATO expansion, as was George Kennan's, that we are actually humiliating the Russians when they're weak, mm-hmm. and they will come back when we are when they are strong. And the mm-hmm. same, I think you, re- when we say to China, um, you can't tell us what to do. The reverse of that is we can tell you what to do. You know, um, and um, and be careful. You know, I actually don't like to use the term China, Bob. I actually much prefer one fifth of humanity who speak Chinese. Let's think. Remember the scale here, folks, of what we're talking about. That's not a reason to surrender, to give in to what they say, but it's a reason not to go out of your way when you're already fighting a war in Europe indirectly with the other superpower to provoke this one when there is a certain parallel between Taiwan and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So you want to, I mean, is there anything else you want to say about Taiwan? I want to ask you some questions about Ukraine, but is there any, anything else you want to say about Taiwan? You know, we're, we're literally sitting here like I, I can't even look at my phone to know like right now, who knows what China, we're, we're literally yeah. at zero hour right now. Um, but I I don't regret at all the column I wrote. I, I, I really thought, you know, it was, uh, you know, it's just so important for people to understand the context of this, not only Taiwan, China, but the global context that this is going on at a time when we are trying uh, to you know, produce a certain geopolitical outcome with the other global superpower. And this superpower, China, has not has actually helped us by mm-hmm. not arming uh, Russia. And to me, that was, as I said, I'm going to repeat myself, but I, th- I repeat myself because it's so important. I'd actually rather not have a Cold War with China, everything being mm-hmm. equal. You know what I mean, I'd rather look for ways to be building bridges where we can, drawing red lines where we absolutely must. And um, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about, again, the direction of China is going, not just because of us, but again, because of she, his imperatives, his view of the world. And um, to the extent that we can avoid that, I think it's one of the most important missions I feel I have as a journalist to contribute intelligence to that discussion. Yeah, and it seems to me the specific point you raised, the issue of China arming Russia right now when we don't want them to, uh, is is represents the broader concern that you just, don't want to drive China toward Russia. You you right. don't want to create a self-fulfilling exactly. uh, prophecy here of this global war against all autocrats and authoritarians. Um, um, and, and, and that's where Nancy Pelosi really should be called on the carpet. What is your strategy? Given what I'm telling you, what you probably must know by now. And by the way, again, look at it from Beijing's point of view. They agreed to do something we requested for their own reasons, no doubt, and their own calculations about the war. But they did it mm-hmm. at a time when we are massively arming Ukraine um, in a way that's inflicting enormous harm on their, you know, uh, a tacit ally, Russia. I mean, think of the dynamics from from their point of view. And you and you see why, at least I believe that the visit was ill-considered and, and really reckless. Yeah. So speaking of like, what is your plan? Do you think the administration has a plan in Ukraine? I, I mean, for yeah. for for kind um, of I I mean, one thing Taiwan illustrates, as does this uh, recent and not completely over uh, dust up in Serbia with Kosovo, right? Is that look the longer a war like this goes on, the more chances there are for just sparks that could yeah, turn it into something totally. bigger. You would think you want to wind this down. Does the administration have a a plan for anything other than this going on forever? I don't think so. I think their only plan is that biology will will take Vladimir Putin from the scene and someone else from will replace him. <laughs> That's um, a pretty I'm long term. But, but yeah. Um, uh, you know, one of the problems with this war, again, is that um, and, and what our conversations always bring out in me, Bob, is that this this confluence of geopolitical imperative and the individual imperatives of leaders, personalities, um, quirks, passions, ignorances, and where one stops and the other starts. By the way, it applies to our leaders uh, as well. So it's true of Putin and Ukraine, it's true of Xi and China. So if I were making the best case for the administration, I think their hope, uh, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, is Putin has a winter strategy and we have a summer fall strategy. So Putin's winter strategy is basically just dragged this war into winter. Um, uh, at that time, the pain of, of higher 
food prices and energy prices on Europe will be so great that they will force Zelensky to um, uh, to relent. But here, I just want to parenthetically throw the question back on you. What is Putin's aim? I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what his aim is. Um, and he's actually never laid it out. You know, we only know by what he's done on the ground. And so I yeah. think that's also a very important question we have to ask. So I, I believe, in, and the administration's is a summer fall strategy in the sense they've they've given these advanced arms, these HIMARS, these um, uh, GPS guided rockets to the Ukrainians. And I am told I have no independent uh, verification of this, but I'm told by people in the government and what you read online by people who actually can track these things now. They're doing real damage to Russia, mm-hmm. uh, the Russian military. Now, that's also a two-sided coin um, because uh, Putin, I believe, believes he cannot lose this war. And if he, if his army were to truly crack, um, uh, I don't think his move is to raise a white flag. I think it's to press a button. And so that also can get really, really scary here. But the hope is, I think, of the administration is that if they can inflict enough damage on Putin in the summer and fall, he will agree to a pause in the war, mm-hmm. some kind of ceasefire. And that might be able to spark, uh, ignite, or create space for some kind of negotiation. Um, that's, that's, I think, is the policy, yeah. uh, as best I can divine it. But I think you also have to ask, Bob, what is his strategy? What is Putin's strategy? Yeah. I, I have no idea. Well, it's funny, if you recall, the way this uh, we wound up scheduling this conversation is you sent me an email about a piece I'd written in my newsletter where I, you know, ventured to, uh, you know, put myself in Putin's shoes and kind of imagine uh, what I thought it was like to be him. And first of all, I was arguing that I I think you should think of him as, among other things, a politician and not just this exotic being from the East. Um, And I said, so so first of all, I think uh, as a politician, he really feels he has to get Luhansk and Donetsk, which he doesn't have yet, because those were yeah. his minimally stated yeah. war aims, right? Yeah. I am acknowledge, I am, I am uh, going to acknowledge the sovereignty of these two quote republics, and that implied like they're going to be safe from Ukraine's clutches by the time I get through. Well, that hasn't happened yet, okay? Uh, and I, he has taken all of Luhansk, but not Donetsk. And, and one yeah. thing I said is, I think you got to understand he's probably he's going to he's going to expend a lot of manpower in order to secure Donetsk. That's my guess. And he's probably not going to be up for any kind of enduring peace before that, unless things, you know, become really, really bad for him, which I guess they could. Um, The other thing I said is 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 to remember that, uh, you know, in a sense, America's overt involvement in this war is kind of his spiritual and political fuel. I mean, the more he can tell the Russian people that it's America and the American empire is fighting against, the longer he can sustain support for this war, I believe. Um, And, you know, the other thing is something you've already, you know, when you said he might uh, worry about him pushing the button is, uh, I think you got to remember that when you start talking about rolling back the Russian troops, like like getting them out of the Donbass, and and certainly if you're serious about trying to get them out of Crimea, Crimea, whether or not he considers that an existential threat to Russia, I think he's going to consider it an existential threat to his regime. That's right. the kind of thing that could lead to a palace coup. That is a failure, pure and simple, in political terms. He's not going to accept that. So I think those are three things you can assert with some confidence. I mean, I, I continue to see him as fundamentally 
a, a rational calculator. Yes, a human being with human psychology who has his idea of where he wants to fit into history. Absolutely. But I don't see any signs that he's crazy. And, and well, no. you know, and so I think. In terms I would of, draw a distinction myself, if I could, um, about, um, between crazy and um, making a really big mistake. Um, oh, yeah. Um, and and um, so I, will, I believe from the very beginning, you know, the first question I asked when this war started back in February is like, gosh, where should I be? Should I be in Warsaw? Should I be in Berlin? Should I be in Lviv? Should I be in Kiev? Should I be in Donbass? Should I be in Moscow? Should I be in Washington? And I've always felt from the very beginning, Bob, that the only place to be to really follow this war um, uh, effectively is in Vladimir Putin's head. Because it, it really, this thing combusted there, it came out of there, and it, it will stop there. You know, So um, uh, to me, what I worry about is, um, is just as maybe Ukraine can't stop or doesn't want to stop until it evicts Russia from every uh, uh, inch of Ukrainian territory, Mm -hmm. My fear is that Putin can't stop either in this sense. You, you and I might say, well, he could go to the Russian people and say, uh, I got the Donbass back, a Russian speaking area, and a road from Crimea to Russia. And look, he's, a, he's an all-powerful leader. He could sell that through his media mm -hmm. any way he wants. But I, I think he fears, um, this is just my guess and maybe projection, that um, after having lost 75,000 killed and wounded, um, uh, a thousand plus pieces of military equipment, um, uh, uh, every Western company out of Russia, to come to his people and say, my people, um, uh, we're, we're, we're done, we won. I got you a road from Crimea through the Donbass to the motherland. I think he's afraid of actually ending the war where someone at home would do the, that math. I mean, we got this for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just projection, just my guess, maybe because if I were him, I would be afraid of doing that. Uh, he's not. Um, I, I hope he's where your head is at, that he feels if he if he got the main pro-Russian, Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine um, back to the motherland, he could justify this war enough to stop it and move on. I, I, I wish, mm -hmm. I hope. Well, but I, my fear is that he, he feels he can't stop. Well, if I, if I was going to try to assuage your fear, I would say... Of these casualties, I mean, I don't know how exactly they're doing the counting, but first of all, a lot of the, ca the casualties on the Russian side are actually uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians in Donetsk and Luhansk who are fighting, who are fighting, you know, have been fighting for the separatists. A lot of the people killed are them. And then on the Russian side, a lot of the people killed are kind of minorities out in the it's hinterland. Exactly, right. Yeah. It, it hasn't hit, you know, kind of his, well, you might say his ethno-nationalist base if there is one. Uh, it, it, there's not, I don't think there are a lot of troops coming from the cities and, and, and so on. And, and I think the good news for you is he seems to very much want to avoid a general mobilization because yes, sure. that yeah. would, that would involve admitting, well, this wasn't just a military technical operation. It was an actual war. So it gets back to your point about dictators polling. I mean, he, he right. doesn't get polls well, you know? So um, I think, I think he has incentive to as much as I think he he wants a to take all of Donetsk, and as much as he certainly doesn't want to see troops significantly rolled back, uh, their possessions significantly rolled back. Um, I think first of all, he might be willing to sacrifice some stuff at the bargaining table. Like he doesn't want to lose Kherson uh, under under Ukrainian fire, but he might be more willing to let go of it for sanctions relief or something. Who knows? But uh, but I think. Um, there is political logic behind him ending this uh, within a year. Uh, that's the hope. 
And I, one more thing, this just reminds me how irresponsible Nancy Pelosi is being. Because I, th- I think you and I have established that it's not all that easy to figure out how this ends. Yeah. One country that could help it end is China, right? Totally. They have so much leverage over Russia. Yeah. So what should we be doing with China right now? The opposite of saber rattling. Exactly. Right? We, should, we should be doing a Kissinger-like move of, of lining up with them against uh, Putin right now, using their leverage. And the war. I've actually had this conversation with Chinese diplomats. And I, I've, I've argued to them, you know, she is, you know, uh, going to become president for life or whatever. It's going to happen in October at the November at the Party Congress. Um, but this is a moment for him to step out in the world and say, I'm inviting Russia, America, EU, Ukraine uh, to, to, you know, Bow Island. And, and uh, we are going to try to end this war. It's very un-Chinese to step out that way. But that's what we should be encouraging. Bob. Mm-hmm. And that's what I meant by eyes on the prize, Nancy. What, what are you encouraging here? Um, actually, the kind of recklessness that you feared the Ukrainians had by making the Taiwanese think the Americans have my back. And by, by the way, there's a whole strand of thinking in Taiwan. That's why I said in my column, you know, I love Taiwan. One of my favorite countries. So many things have changed in Taiwan, except your geography. That hasn't changed. And small nations that lose sight of their geography, that they are a tiny island off mainland China, can really um, make mistakes. Their current president, I would argue, is from the sober school. But there is another school there that's constantly uh, in tension with the sober school that says, we got the Americans at our back. Let's poke the, you know, poke the panda bear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this kind of visit only encourages it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was told, I, I didn't hear it. That's on Squawk Box this morning. Um, uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin read a paragraph from my column to Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, and asked him the, the sort of the key col- argument of the column about Russia and the connection here. And I didn't see this, but I, I was told that Cotton said, well, why in the world should I listen to Tom Friedman? So in, other words, in other words, that's one way engage- to avoid engaging your argument. Exactly. Not engaging the argument, but just, oh, he's a New York Times liberal and whatever, you know. Um, yeah. And, um, and that's what also worries me. Pelosi, you know, Mitch McConnell's come out and endorsed her visit. Speaker of the, uh, uh, the would-be Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has endorsed her visit. They, they're goading her into doing this. They, they, they love this. And by the way, if it actually ends badly, they'll be nowhere to be found. They mm-hmm. will be nowhere to be found. Yeah. Now, I've heard, I read a, a Twitter thread from somebody who seems to know what he's talking about, suggesting that in terms of the blowback from this, the China will wait until Pelosi has left Taiwan, yeah, but yeah. but will do, something, will do something, some kind of show of force. Yeah. Uh, presumably, we can weather that. But the longer term problem uh, that we're talking about, which is that in a certain sense, we need China more than ever right now. And in any event, a Cold War is just not good for the planet. Um, can I give you a, non, a non-zero argument? I um, love those. This, if it, um, uh, uh, and this is part of the book I'm wor- working on now. So I think that the the actual biggest divide in the world we're going into is no longer East, West, North, South, communist, capitalist, Russian, Chinese, American. It's going to be between the world of order and the world of disorder. That basically, uh, I've been arguing this for a while, average is over for every worker. It's just much harder now to, to master all the skills you need for a good job. But average is over for countries too, Bob. So the 50 years after World War II were a great time to be a weak little country. Oh, my God, if you're a weak little country, that was your era. There were two superpowers throwing money at you. 
arming you. Syria can lose three wars to Israel, get his army rebuilt for free all three times. Uh, educating your kids at Patrice Lumumba University of Moscow or Wichita State in America, number one. Number two, climate change was moderate. Populations were small. No one had a cell phone. And China was not in the World Trade Organization. So everybody could be in the textile business, low-wage industries. My argument is all that flips in the early 21st century. Now, no superpower wants to touch you because all they think they win is a bill. Uh, 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 case in point, Afghanistan. On uh, number two, climate change is now hammering these countries. Populations have exploded. Iran population, 1979, 40 million. Today, 85 million. And probably 500,000 people were born in Egypt since we began this conversation. Um, uh, everyone has a cell phone to compare their country to the one next door. And oh, mine even now has a human trafficking app on it. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, China's in the World Trade Organization, so nobody can be in the textile business. Now, what this is doing is stressing out the weakest states, and they have started to fracture and hemorrhage their people. Yes, we broke a couple ourselves, but others are doing so just fine. Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and, uh, Haiti, and our, uh, our hemisphere, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, all parts of the parts of the Middle East. And what they're doing is they're hemorrhaging their people, okay? And they're basically coming north, uh, looking to get from the world of disorder to the world of order. You know, my view of Israel is Israel is to wider trends in civilization, what off-Broadway is to Broadway. So I always watch the trends in Israel. There, It's a very, very interesting microcosm. What's the biggest wall Israel built in the last decade? It ain't in the West Bank. It's a 250-kilometer fence in the Negev to keep people from Eritrea and South Sudan walking across the Sinai to Israel, and they're not looking for kosher food, okay? If I took you, if I dropped you, Bob, today in the Tel Aviv bus station and blindfolded you, but you could just hear, and then took the blindfolds off and look around, you would say, am I, am I in the Nairobi uh, bus station? Because basically, Israel now has 60,000 dreamers. These are kids born of these basically migrants, you know, who grow up speaking Hebrew and go to Israeli schools. It's a microcosm of the problem. Now, I believe the grand problem that we're going into in the world going forward is basically how do we help stabilize these countries? It's a non-zero problem. It's going to require Russia, mm -hmm. China, mm -hmm. U.S., Japan, a collaborating, creating what I call a complex adaptive coalition to actually help stabilize these countries. I leave you with just with one, one example. Um, which to me is one of the most important stories in the world. Um, uh, in 20, uh, I guess it was 2018, Macron comes to Beirut after the explosion in Beirut port. You remember the, the terrible explosion right. that broke apart Beirut? He lands in Beirut, and I'm not making this up. As they say, you can Google it. And the first thing he gets is a petition signed from 60,000 Lebanese, please recolonize us. Hmm. Please restore the French mandate. Now, what were those Lebanese saying? Or what was Macron saying when he said no? Macron was saying, you're too late for imperialism. That, that, that era is over. No one is going to come from the outside and order your disorder. But you failed at self-government. Bob, we haven't been here before. We've either lived in a world of empires mm -hmm. and big states, you know, or virtually you know, quasi-empires in a lot of 192 small states. But we now have states that are too late for imperialism. I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying it as a historical fact. No one's going to come from the outside. And they failed at self-government. What is to happen? Who's going to order Lebanon? Who's going to order Libya? Who's going mm -hmm. to order you know, Somalia these days? And I think these zones of disorder are going to get bigger and bigger. And the only answer is the kind of new Marshall Plan, is collaboration between China, Russia, EU, Japan, the world of order to help 
stabilize these countries and give them a chance forward. I think it's the big, biggest non-zero um, yeah. uh, geopolitical question going forward. Well, That's, some of these countries right now might tell you that China seems more interested in helping them than the U.S. is, and then they might have in mind the Belt and Road Initiative. And, and some people might... Well, uh, get, too, like Sri Lanka. But Sri Lanka is a, right. another version of Lebanon. You know, it's the right. same... But but I think and some people might say, well, uh, the Cold War had its virtues. You know, they're at least part of a bidding war. But I, I kind of agree with you that if you look at the way the Cold War played out, uh, the motives of the great powers partly converge with the interests of some of these countries. But you also wind up with a lot of shenanigans that aren't good for the countries. It yeah. would be much preferable if the U.S. and China recognize that it's in their joint interest to stabilize the world, absolutely. I mean, think about how visionary the American leadership would have to be compared to what we've had <laughs> for that to actually happen. And, and, and look, China, Chinese leadership too, but, but I'm just speaking as an American, I, I don't see presidents thinking that way. Well, you know, it's, it's exactly right, and it's a problem because you know, my favorite movie, really of all time, maybe is The Martian. Um, uh, with Matt Damon, because you remember how it ends, where the Chinese. I haven't seen it actually, but oh, you should go see it. It's actually, you'd love it. It's a very non-zero-ish ending. The Chinese end up using their booster rocket to save the Martian um, stranded on Mars, the American mm -hmm. astronaut. And at the theater I was in, at the ending, people applauded. Mm. Uh, it was kind of a vision that I think actually is in all of us. Wouldn't it be nice if we could do this? Now, this may be Tom Friedman, Minnesota, you know, naive kid. But I, I don't think this is just naivete. I'm telling you, folks, this is what I'd say to Tom Cotton. Mm. Well, what is your view of the world? Yeah. How do you think this is going to come out good? You know, that we just, we just, you just compete with your fellow Republicans over you know, who can poke China the best. I mean, um, again, that's why I say, please don't talk to me about China. Talk about one fifth, one out of five people on the planet who speak Chinese. OK, that's the scale of what we're talking about. And, uh, and again, they may have a leadership, and I, I have real problems with Xi, that make what I'm talking about impossible, but I want to do everything I can to explore mm -hmm. the possibility of it, because I think the direction of, of the world right now is really scary to me. Yeah, well, what I'd like to say to everyone, including Tom Cotton, who thinks that, uh, you know, woolly-minded liberals like me just aren't interested in pursuing the national interest is that, no, that's not our argument. Our argument is that increasingly, as a result of technological evolution that's been going on for millennia, it is, in fact, in America's national interest to attend uh, to some problems abroad and to coordinate and collaborate with countries abroad. It, I think it's just a fact. And, 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 and look, it, and you know, way, if we I can't thought, do it all ourselves. The problem is too big. You know? Right, right. So let me, can I ask you before you go uh, about a couple of paragraphs in today's column, which fascinated yes. me? I'm going to read them. Uh, you're talking about Pelosi's, uh, uh, well, you, okay, I'll join it midstream. Privately, U.S. officials are a lot more concerned about Ukraine's leadership than they are letting on. There is deep mistrust between the White House and Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky, considerably more than has been reported. And there's funny business going on in Kiev. On July 17th, Zelensky fired his country's prosecutor general and the leader of its domestic intelligence agency. The most significant shakeup in his government since the Russian invasion in February. It would be the equivalent of Biden firing Merrick Garland and Bill Burns on the same day. But I've still not seen any reporting that convincingly explains what that was all about. It is as if we don't want to look too closely under the hood in Kiev for fear of what corruption or antics we might see when we have invested so much there. Um, 
first of all, it sounds like you may know a little more than you wrote. And if you want to share that with <laughs> us, feel free. But I also have a question aside from that. Well, you know, I said early on in this war, um, when I wrote a column dinging uh, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, for saying we want to destroy Russia or bring down Russia or whatever. Weaken. Weaken them, yeah. Um, I want to keep our goals really tight, number one. And the other, I've learned the hard way, Bob, um, really the hard way, never fall in love with any of these countries. They're all um, uh, jack in the box, and you never know what's going to pop out. Let's remember, most Americans still couldn't find Ukraine on a map with 10 tries. Um, and, uh, and, and when you get this deeply embedded in a country, that uh, if you look up the, the, um, uh, the list on global corruption, Transparency International, I think Russia was like right there near the top of 160, but like Ukraine was like 130. I mean, this, yeah. this was a country with a lot of corruption problems before the war started. And they don't just go away like that. And so um, I've just had people say things to me um, uh, in the administration through the process of my reporting, you know, commenting on um, uh, the fact that there remains corruption there. And when we're putting that much money into a vessel, this is not Norway, um, uh, uh, I'm very worried about, uh, I don't want to wake up at the end of this war whenever it comes um, uh, and find that, you know, billions have been siphoned off into Swiss bank accounts. Um, uh, et cetera. So I'm just, I'm just sending up a flare mm -hmm. uh, that the biggest thing I learned, I think as a journalist among the biggest thing is that when you don't call things by their real name, you get in trouble, you know, mm -hmm. when you don't. And, and that was simply as I did with the Austin article. Um, you know, if, if bad shit is happening there like that, 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 um, when you fire the attorney general, could that be uh, maybe because she was about to investigate some people that some people inside mm -hmm. shouldn't be investigated right now? I, I mm -hmm. don't know. All I know is uh, that's a story that went by in which I said, whoa, what is at the bottom of that story in mm -hmm. you? You know, and uh, I want to know that now. I want all the dark stuff out now. You know what I mean? As we go along, let's mm -hmm. address it, fix it, move on. Um, and uh, and so I, I put that flare up in, in, intentionally in that article. Yeah, well, one problem I've had with the framing of this war, I thought that the way to look at it is, look, Russia violated international law, transporter aggression, that's bad. The framing has, the official framing has been more like, this is a war on behalf of liberal democracy. And one problem with that is Ukraine is a democracy, right. not all that liberal a democracy. Right. And, and right. if you're committed to the narrative that it is, you're going to have to start overlooking stuff and covering stuff up. But that's and, why my point is, and it's exact, my point has been, let's do our business. Our business was, this was violating, you know, the, the international border of Ukraine, unprovoked in my view. If Putin could do this here, he can do it all over Europe. Let's reverse this, period, paragraph, end it. Whatever happens after that, you know, we'll, we'll, we can address, but don't fall in love. No, don't fall in love with your narrative or theirs. I mean, I have heard for some time, not, not in mainstream media emphatically though, that. You know, Zelensky may not have as much power as you might think a president would have. And there are forces behind the scenes, maybe oligarchs. Uh, maybe the, the Azov Brigade has been known to play hardball and they represent a significant right wing movement. And, 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 and there might be government officials who, who fear that they'll actually be killed or something if they, you know, that, that it's a, a lot more complex than, than we think and, a, and, and significantly less like America than we think. I mean, what, what is, do you, have you heard stuff like this or? 
Yeah, I, I think that there's just, um, uh, he's, first of all, it is a democracy in that he's constantly weighing, worrying about who's going to challenge him, who mm-hmm. comes next as president. Um, there are factions. Um, there are financial interests that we know in this country. They, there are a lot of Ukrainian oligarchs. And all I'm kind of saying by putting that in my column is that, um, and I will do more reporting on this myself, um, is I want to know everything now. I don't want to be closing my eyes and not reporting something because I fear that it will weaken my side in this war. Now, I think we're strengthened. Mm-hmm. Let's know exactly who we're with. We know all of their problems. Um, it doesn't change the fact that the principle we're defending is, I think, both important and just. But um, let's not blind ourselves mm-hmm. and not report on things that I hear people whispering to me that I want to know more about. Right. So so this, I want to reread these two sentences again of yours, but I have still not seen any reporting that convincingly explains what that was all about, is if we don't want to look too closely under the hood. Well, that's a, that's a critique of repertorial journalism in America. And, and I'm wondering if you think, I personally think, it's it's kind of gone downhill, and it and partly as a result of the Trump era, when kind of the mainstream media, understandably, reacted so strongly against Trump, and I think in some cases departed from objectivity in more than usual. I mean, look, we can never be objective, but I mean, uh, but, but got more into the business of sustaining an anti-Trump narrative than trying to do the most objective reporting possible every single day. I think that happened. I think technological forces by bringing us in touch with how many people are reading each article and clicking on each headline. I think that has its own pernicious effect. But sure. but I, 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 I just wonder if I'm wrong in thinking that the way the Ukraine war is being covered, I guess I'd say it seems to me that the American media broadly is covering it the way we would cover a war that we ourselves are involved in almost. There's, there's, that degree of departure from objectivity does that does that make any sense to you or, or are you pretty happy with the way the war is being covered repertorially yeah. um you know i've i have a certain allergy to press criticism i confess um mm-hmm. often being the object of it so i'm really wary i also have a lot of sympathy for um this is a dangerous place um, right now i mean to try to cover this war i mean you you, you know yeah. when a rock's going to land on you anytime, anywhere. Um, and so um, I, I was just, I put that in there just to highlight that let's make sure that um, we're telling the reader everything about this country we know or can find, because I want to know it now. It doesn't, not because I want to get out of the war or whatever, because I don't want to be surprised at the end. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to keep my eyes on the prize, which is um, uh, rolling Russia back out of Ukraine, which I think is the the key principle for the future of Europe and is an important feature for uh, f- important factor for international relations generally going forward. Um, and if Ukraine, you know, um, is less of a democracy or more of a democracy, I don't know how much we can control of that. That's in their fate. That's mm-hmm. in their, that, that, that is in their hands. But I, I just want to make sure I'm telling myself as I'm putting in my own column that you're searching for and understanding and not romanticizing this. Again, my mm-hmm. short answer for it was don't fall in love. Let's mm-hmm. do our business and get out. I don't want this war to be the rest of my life. And when you say we want to roll Russia out of Ukraine, do you think that's uh, can realistically be done without incurring unacceptable risk, given what you've said about Vladimir Putin yeah. pushing oh, the yeah. button? Under- what I say, I, 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 I'm all for any 
peaceful diplomatic solution mm-hmm. that Ukraine and, and Russia can come to terms with. And if that involves Russia maintaining some kind of referendum in the Donbass or some kind of control there, um, that's just the balance of power. I think bringing this war to the quickest peaceful end is the most important thing. And it goes back to what I said when the war started, Bob, this to me is the first world war. This is the first real world war. World War I was not a world war. Half the world was colonized then. They didn't have a voice in anything. Um, and, and many people were just subsistence farmers. They weren't affected. To some extent, the same in World War II. This is truly the first world war, where two weeks after it started, Argentinian farmers couldn't afford the diesel fuel for their tractors and couldn't get the fertilizer they needed. And so, um, uh, to point you made earlier on, I really believe every week this war goes on is more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Something bad can happen, some miscalculation. The sooner we can get to a pause and negotiations, the better it is. Okay. Well, thank you, Tom. Is there anything else you want to say? I, I really encourage people to read uh, the column you wrote uh, today on uh, Pelosi in Taiwan and Ukraine. No, this was uh, fun as always. I always enjoy these uh, conversations. You make me think. And um, uh, I commend everyone to read and and, uh, and, and subscribe to your Substack. And I'm well, God that. bless you again, son. Okay. Uh, okay. Thanks so much. Thanks for taking the time. Let's do this again right. down the road. Absolutely, Bob. Thanks so much.